everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. So, you guys have your Bibles? If you didn't bring them, there are Bibles in the back uh, by the giving baskets on those tables by the doors. I'd op- invite you to open to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. We've been really hustling through this book. Today we're going to slow down and just look at two verses from chapter 2. Uh, I know a lot of you have been finding a lot of life in these words of Peter. And while you open your Bibles or grab them, uh, I want to just show you a little picture of myself and my three-year-old daughter and my wife. Uh, We took a road trip out to Pella, Iowa. So that's like two days of driving, uh, even longer with a three-year-old and a pregnant wife. Uh, Thankfully, there's a lot of rest stops on I-80 and 76, but the, uh, the occasion to go back to Pella is that every year they have a tulip festival because this little town was founded by Dutch immigrants and something that they schemed to get people to come back home is they have a baby uh, part, they have a baby parade inside of a bigger parade. So that's like an hour and a half parade, but we put on our Dutch costumes. This is something I would do every year when I was a kid. Uh, you can't see the shoes that I'm wearing, but can you guess what they're made of? Wooden shoes. I walked about three miles in wooden shoes. Actually, very good for the knees, very bad for the calves, and uh, I had like kind of little bruises right there on my ankle, the front of my foot. But uh, we wear that to celebrate our Dutch heritage. And my three-year-old uh, was running around after she put her costume on, telling everyone, "Now I'm Dutch. Now I'm Dutch." Well, of course, that was always true, but there was something about putting on the costume, there was something about walking in the parade, there was something about making that identity public that reinforced the reality that was already there. Do you see where I'm going with this? <laughs> we're uh, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and he brings back up an idea of the Christian, the follower of Jesus, actually being like a foreigner, a for, foreigner, <laughs> a foreigner, uh, an immigrant, a pilgrim in a world that they do not fundamentally belong to. In other words, just as in the early 1800s, a few Dutch immigrants traveled across the ocean and halfway across the country to settle into a town, their customs, their way of living, even the way they dressed, didn't match the uh, rest of American culture. And so in tulip time, it is celebrated through food and costumes and parades. For the follower of Jesus, we don't wear funny clothes, unless maybe you're a a priest, and then you maybe wear something around your collar. But people know that we are Christians through different means, not by a funny accent, but by a way of living that is put on display for all to see. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. I'm going to read this actually twice through. And then we're going to enter into that time of silence where for a minute you can quiet your heart, 
quiet your mind, invite God's presence into this place to just meet with us. So here it is, the words of one of Jesus' dearest friends and perhaps most well-known disciple. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see you honor your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. So now a time of silence. So Jesus, we turn our hearts to you. We open our ears and our minds to your words as they are spoken through your friend, Peter, but inspired by your Holy Spirit that is still active. So make us to be more like you to live and to love and to be. Amen. So I want to flip back a page, if you've got your Bibles, to 1 Peter chapter 1 and just read the first two verses again because it helps give context. There's, in a sense, uh, a repetition or a refrain that, for Peter calls us back to from the opening verses. Uh, of course, it begins, this is a letter from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners. There's the reprise, there's the refrain, there's the repeated idea in the province, provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. 
So uh, a, a particular place and time, this area is under the influence and reign of the Roman Empire. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit, his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And so as we read the words from 1 Peter chapter 2, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. We are reminded that it is the Holy Spirit that actually makes us holy and that we were chosen by God. That is our bedrock. And there's a lot actually going in uh, kind of underneath the English words from the Greek that doesn't translate super well. So we're going to, I'll be kind of wrestling with the Greek text, even though I know you have the English in front of you. But there's a, there's a clear uh, progression in these two verses. It's actually very sophisticated, very densely packed. Peter begins by reminding these followers of Jesus of their identity, first of all. Then he moves into the internal battle that each of us are facing before turning to the external expression of what the love of God transforming our hearts in turn gets expressed as. So first of all, the identity of the followers of Jesus. Dear friends, in the Greek, this is agapateto or something like that. But the, uh, the, the key word is agape. So it's like the noun, uh, a noun form of the verb agape or love. So my beloved friends. And this agape love is the kind of self-sacrificial, constant, undeserved love that God shows. So I actually think Peter is reminding these followers of Jesus that they are loved by God. He is reminding them of the sacrifice of Jesus, that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. And so when we talk about the internal war and the external expression and uh, suffering or persecution, there is grounding, there is a grounding in the identity that we have as God's beloved friends. Uh, as you saw, I have a three-year-old, and I don't know where she got this exactly, but she started telling uh, my wife, Allison, Mommy, I love you, even though you make mistakes. <laughs> we've, never, we've never actually told her those words, but she's put the pieces together God loves you even when you make mistakes. And so even as the command to abstain from the sins of the flesh is given, the reminder is that even when you give in to the desires of your sinful nature, there is still a God out there that loves you even when you make mistakes. The next two words uh, about identity are related, but bring a slight nuance to our understanding of what it means to live as followers of Jesus in this world. The English comes through as temporary residents and foreigners. Perhaps a better translation would be pilgrim or sojourner, remember, and get this, exiles. 
So you pilgrims and exiles, you are pilgrims because, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, we're just not fully at home in this world and the values and the ways of living that this world projects. We have an earthly, or we, we have an earthly uh, habitation, but we are citizens of heaven. We live for a heavenly city. And so there's a, there's a story of a Christian missionary who in 1910 boards a boat from Africa coming back to the U.S. His name is Dr. Samuel Morrison. Now, there was somebody else on this boat coming back from Africa in 1910. Can everybody, anybody guess who else was on this boat? Who? John Newton? Nope. It was Teddy Roosevelt, also coming back from Africa after his three-week hunting party. He was the recently or former president, and he goes off to Africa for three weeks and shoots some big animals. Uh, Dr. Samuel Morrison comes back on this boat, and there's this parade, and there's shouts, and there's music, and people have come to see the president who went on a three-week hunting trip. This missionary had been serving the people of Africa, bringing the gospel, the good news about Jesus for 30 years, and he's having this little internal dialogue. He says, why does the president who shot a few animals, get all this praise. I've been giving my life for Jesus for 30 years, and I come home and nobody even notices. And then the Holy Spirit speaks to him. He says, that's because you're not home yet. We are pilgrims. We are citizens of a heavenly city. And so I want to remind you today that the rewards that you see other people receiving, but you yourself have not perhaps experienced, is because you're not home yet. There is a reward waiting when Jesus returns. When you die as someone who is beloved by God and returns that love with an acknowledgement of his kingship, of his lordship, uh, but by giving your life to him, you are guaranteed that when you finally return home to your heavenly city, there is a reward waiting for you. Dearly beloved, pilgrims and exiles. The word exile harkens back to the time in Israel's history where the Judeans in particular, the southern kingdom, gets brought into a foreign land named Babylon. Now, this is a defining moment for Israel because they are, in a sense, being punished from their, for their sins, for their abandoning God, for their turning to idols, for their uh, mistreatment of the poor, if you read the Old Testament prophets. And so they are led out of their homeland into a foreign country, with foreign values and ideals, uh, and they're, they're attempting to basically wipe out these people, the people of God. But the people of God return to God in their hearts and cling to God in their captivity, and so God eventually brings them back 
a few empires later, but back to their homes in Israel. If you're still open to 1 Peter, flip just to chapter 5. Let's see here. Chapter 5, verse 13. Peter here is signing off from the letter. He's saying his goodbye. And he's saying, uh, on behalf of the church that I'm here leading, in verse 13, your sister church here in where? Babylon sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Babylon has been gone for hundreds of years. Where is Peter? He's in Rome. He's referring to Rome in code, calling them the captor, the, the people who have put the, had put the people of Israel in captivity. And the Roman Empire was not just located in the city of Rome. The Roman values, the Roman culture was not just found in the city of Rome. It was found across the entire Western world, across Turkey, these very churches Peter is writing to, down the Mediterranean coast into Africa. The Roman military had conquered, but more than that, the Roman culture had invaded. And so a few characteristics of what it is like to live in the Roman Empire, in the ancient pagan world, but also in like a an exiled life, a captivity life, uh, could be maybe just summarized in a few simple phrases. The ancient pagan culture sees politics as a religion. It is highly sexualized, and it proclaims tolerance unless that person happens to be claiming absolute truth. Sound anything like contemporary secular culture? Maybe a little bit. I think maybe in our context... Politics has replaced religion as the thing that vies for our deepest passions and energies and heart. But I think we live in a culture that is highly sexualized. I think we live in a culture that preaches tolerance, except shows great intolerance for anyone who might believe in absolute truth. And if you are living as an exile, you are getting constantly bombarded by the values and the lifestyle of the uh, dominant culture or people. And this is in overt ways, and this is in subtle ways. If you lived in the Roman Empire, you took out a dollar bill, well, it was a coin, and it had somebody's face on it, Caesar. And on that coin, the inscription read, Savior of the world. And then you would go and spend that coin in a shop, And that shop reflected the values of the culture that it was living in, even what it sold, the the pictures on the wall. You're walking down the street, and there are pornographic images in a lot of the art. You're walking down the street, and you're seeing images of Caesar. You're walking down the street, and there's a pagan temple here and a pagan temple there, and people are trying to woo you in through, like, sometimes very overt sexual invitations. Because if you go into the pagan temple, you know what the priestess was there to do? Well, we'll keep it G-rated. People living in exile are constantly bombarded by messages, 
values. Uh, th- there's a there's a sense that you're being wooed into an alternative description of the good life. And Peter is saying, don't forget that you're living as exiles and that this world is not ultimately your home in terms of like the, the values and the ways of living. Remember too that you are loved by God and the most powerful kind of love, that love that is chosen, that is freely given, that love that lays down its life for its friends. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very soul. So here's what's going on on the inside. Did you hear that language? Wage war. There is a war inside between the spirit, between the life that is reflecting God's glory, God's love, who God is, God's character, and this fleshly impulse. Now, the idea of war, we might think of like video games. You know, you sit down and then it's over in like an hour or a half an hour. If you're playing online games, maybe it's four hours later. The war is over. In Roman times, the Roman army was made up of soldiers, yes, but these soldiers were also engineers. So, for instance, when Julius Caesar goes and conquers what we now call France and the Gaelic Wars, when you were attacking an army, you would see the Romans show up. And then the next day, they would start building. And before you know, your city had a, a Roman imperial city full of soldiers next door. So here's an example of a, uh, a wall that was, this is rebuilt, this isn't the original, but the, the siege of Alicia, and they built this fortification. It was actually, in this case, a double fortification. They built a wall around the city to keep the people in, and then they built another wall outside of that wall to keep any rescuers out. So there's a double-walled fortress surrounding the city. So this is not like a one battle and done ordeal that Peter is invoking here. Peter is talking about a long-term strategy of the enemy to plant and to conquer and to starve out your love for God and to implant a fear in you that drives you to do reckless things. Uh, the the local Gaelic like commander here sends out the women and children because they're running out of food into that Roman um, wall. He left them for dead because he was afraid. He abandoned his own people for what led to an ultimate defeat. The war that we fight in the inside against the desires of the flesh is not once and done. It is a long-term strategy of the enemy to bombard us with an alternative life, with alternative beliefs, with alternative faith. The enemy wants us to put our trust in things other than Jesus. He wants us to make our king someone other than the true king, Jesus. And he will not 
succeed if we cling to our Savior. Peter reminds us of that too. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from your worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Let's take a look at a list of those worldly desires quickly. You probably know this from Galatians chapter 5. I want to read verse 16 first, and then by the time you are there in your Bibles, we'll read the, the rest. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Now down to verse 19. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustly pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. In other words, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know what they are. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is Paul giving some more definition to what Peter means by fleshly desires. So these guys are in conversation, in tandem, understand each other because they both go to Jesus as their ultimate teacher. Now, this this ends with kind of like a, ooh, ouch. (laughs) But again, remember, the identity of the one who turns to Jesus is that he or she is loved by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit and protected by the, the reign and the kingship of Jesus. And yet the struggle is real. Another guy from about the same time as Dr. Samuel Morrison is D.L. Moody or Dwight Moody. You've maybe heard of him because uh, he was someone who established a printing press or not, you know, like a a printing company. Uh, And so maybe you've heard of Moody Publishers. He set up an institute in Chicago, the Moody Bible Institute, Uh, a a fairly famous evangelist and preacher, uh, originally from Connecticut. So... You guys have heard of D.L. Moody? Okay, yes. So I want to read you a quote, and I want you to know that this quote is from somebody that's already been mentioned today, and I want you to guess who it is, who said this. The man who gives me the most trouble in the whole world is D.L. Moody. Who said it? Who? D.L. Moody. (laughs) Are you self-aware enough? to say that about yourself. The man who gives me the most trouble in the whole world is me. (laughs) The woman who gives me... But that's not actually what we think or do. We want to place blame on somebody else. Maybe it's the president. Maybe it's the person you're married to. Maybe it's your boss. They're the ones that we have deceived ourselves into believing. They're the source of our trouble. D.L. Moody reminds us and Peter reminds us that there is a war that's going on inside. Now to the outflowing from 1 Peter chapter 2. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give glory to God when he judges the world. Let me start with the the back end of that. uh, So the slides aren't going to be super in order, but Isn't it amazing 
that the life of the early Christians, which was infused with the power of the Holy Spirit, a care for the poor, a love for the stranger, is being forewarned that as you live in love, the reaction of the pagan culture is going to be that of accusation or of antagonism. Again, I think the ancient pagan world is starting to reflect our current world. For a long time, the church and Christians were given a lot of prestige and authority and influence in politics and in communities. And now, I think more than I've seen in my lifetime, there is a posture of antagonism and accusation. Sometimes it's deserved. And sometimes not. But Peter says, don't be surprised. In fact, this letter was probably written around or during the reign of Nero. You've maybe heard of Nero as one of the first great persecutors of Christians. He was emperor between like 55, is it? 54 and 68. Uh, And he would, in the city of Rome at least, take these Christians and burn them like candles in his garden parties. And he couldn't get any accusation to stick. Like, for instance, he blamed them for lighting a fire that burned a large portion of the city of Rome, but nobody could find any evidence. What he accused the early Christians for that couldn't really be defended is haters of humanity. So the people who actually lived out the love of God was called by the most powerful man in the world, hater of humanity. So we can expect accusation. We shouldn't be uh, surprised if we face uh, antagonism or attack or accusation. But even in the midst of that attack, the response that we are to have is, in the words of Peter, be careful to live properly with your unbelieving neighbors, that they might honor God. In other words, the only hope that your unbelieving neighbors have of getting a glimpse of the love of God and turning their lives over to him is if your life reflects the character and the love of God. Not that everyone will, but if there is any hope for your unbelieving neighbor to give glory and honor, at least voluntarily, to God when he comes to judge the world, it will be through the way you love them, even as they are antagonistic to you. The English here says to live properly. The Greek is actually kalos, which I think a better translation of would be beautiful. Let your life be beautiful. Let your love be beyond what like worldly love is or is defined as. I, uh, I remember uh, hearing a story from a Canadian friend. And so the Canadian culture is a little bit different. You'd think this would never happen in America. But a, a Canadian friend, uh, he was an old farmer, you know, drove a pickup, find somebody broken down alongside the road. And uh, the farmer says, hey, how can I help you? And, and the guy alongside the road, he says, uh, I, I'm just, this is, 
car won't run. I'm trying to get to Toronto. It's two and a half hours away. And the, the old farmer says, get in the truck. I'll give you a ride. It sounds like you're in a hurry. And he drives two and a half hours out of his way, drops off the man who had broken down. And the man says, this doesn't make any sense. Why would you do this? And the farmer said, the love of Christ compels me. I love you sacrificially and generously because I have experienced sacrificial and generous love from my Savior. And so I urge you, I encourage you, I invite you to live a life that is beautiful. And that when that love and care and hospitality faces attack, to continue, to not react with anger or fear or defensiveness or accusation, but simply love. Live a beautiful life. To give just slightly more definition to this, uh, the leaders uh, have been reading a book together called Canoeing the Mountains. Excellent read. Um, it uses the story of Lewis and Clark as the driving metaphor and what happens when Lewis and Clark get to the end of the Missouri River and see the Rocky Mountains for the first time and realize that they can't take their canoes with them? What got them to the end of the Missouri won't get them across the Rockies. But the, uh, the thing I want to import here is three phrases that I found super helpful in my own life. Stay calm. Stay connected. And the book actually says stay the course in our own family, we've modified it to stay, to say, stay curious. So when you face accusation, when you find yourself in stressful situations at work or in your family, stay calm. Don't react with anger when you meet anger. Don't react passive-aggressively and sarcastically when people are passive-aggressive and sarcastic to you. React with kindness. Stay connected. The common thing to do in this world when there is disagreement or, or conflict is to divide, but to move toward people. This is what God does for us. <laughs> if we resist God, God keeps moving toward us. He respects our freedom. He doesn't force or coerce, but he continues to offer connection. And finally, stay curious. Uh, the, the youth here, I've been leading them through a Christian sexuality series. And one of the big questions is, how do we love people who have a different set of values or beliefs than us when it comes to their sexual behavior? And it's, it's kind of an interesting question because you love people who have different values and beliefs as you the same way you love people who have the same values and beliefs as you. You don't have to adopt those values and beliefs in order to show kindness. One of the, one of the things that was offered up from the group is one of the ways you love people is that you listen to them. Tell me about your life. Tell me about why you believe those things. Tell me about how you got here. So to stay curious rather than to correct or to condemn. And so live lives, my beloved brothers and sisters, beautifully. Even when people accuse you, so that on the day that Jesus appears, 
That's the little Greek. That's the literal Greek there. There will be a day when Jesus appears and people will recognize Jesus because they've seen you. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. We bring ourselves to you because we need help. We need your mercy. We need you to make us beautiful and holy. Some of us are tired. Some of us are stressed. Some of us are feeling like they're at the end of their rope, unsure what they're even going to do to make it through the next week, let alone live a beautiful life. And so we ask for your strength. We invite your spirit to come as we sing, not just uh, to hear our words, but to empower and enliven our hearts. So come, Holy Spirit. We welcome you. We love you. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.